This is Two Nerds in a Joke with Robert and Ernie. Thank you, Bristol Body Hot Girl Voice. This is Two Nerds in a Joke, Robert and Ernie. I'm Ernie. And I am Robert, um, and we are excited today. I will tell you, I don't know about you, Ernie, but I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm very excited. Yes, as excited as Ernie gets. But we are excited today. We have a very special guest with us today, Jordan from the Nerd Clinic, or Nerd Clinic, wow, Nerd Critic, I had to speak properly today, see there's my first (laughs) fail of the show, Um, from the Nerd Critic. It's all about branding. It is. It is. The Nerd Critic is a wonderful show that I I have been uh, researching, looking at, and listening to all about movies. And, and, and Jordan, you've done this podcast for quite a, for looks like quite a while by the number of episodes you got. What has <laughs> yeah, we're been, getting up, <laughs> getting up there. How did you guys get your start in this? Uh, just wanted to, <laughs> um, we, <laughs> <There you go. laughs> yeah, CJ, CJ and I, uh, CJ is the, the, the nerd half of nerd critic, uh, loosely. We're both, we're both nerdy and critical, but, uh, but CJ is kind of the nerd half and I'm kind of the critic half. And we just had this idea uh, a little over a year ago to, um, to start a podcast where we just talked about movies because uh, we were already doing it. And um, we, we thought that our conversations were pretty cool. We're like, maybe other people will too. <laughs> so we just, we just launched it based on that idea. Yeah, and that's it's kind of a fun thing because movies are just there's so much to talk about with movies, and even if you hear half a dozen people talk about it, you'd still find something interesting and and new to talk about with old movies and new movies. And because I see from the podcast you guys have done, you've done older movies, you've done new movies, and so forth. Is there a trend to what your your themes are of what you talk about? You just kind of do you have like a critical format that you kind of go through, or is it just kind of whatever you feel is the most important piece to that movie? That's a great question. So um, there is kind of a modus operandi um, for our show or a central theme, um, which is that we believe so the log line of our show is to love movies like a nerd and respect them like a critic. Um, And so the idea is that every movie, every movie deserves to be treated kind of the same way, which is you bring a lot of generosity um, and sort of charitable audience uh, attitude toward the movie. Um, where you try to understand what it's doing and uh, what it's trying to do. And then you can hopefully love some of it, if not all of it, or love parts of it, if not the whole. And then also bring a a reasonable critical eye to it. Try to understand how movies work and what they're trying to do and whether or not they're doing it well. And if they're not succeeding, why are they not succeeding? And that's, um, we, we, our, our strong belief is that um, watching movies is, uh, isn't, an infinitely richer experience if you know something about movies, if you are willing to study them and, and really become involved as an informed member of the audience rather than just someone who's sort of, sort of passively letting movies wash over you every couple of months. So that's, um, that's the kind of the, the principle or the hope that we bring um, to, to the show. And that's the, the message that we try to get across with every episode um, to, to treat movies from that dual perspective, basically. You talk about knowing the movies. It sounds like you have some education or experience and background of being a critic more than just you enjoy being a critic of movies. Um, <laughs> do you have a film industry background or do you have you taken coursework in it? Because it sounds like you have like more than just, a, oh, I can sit down and tell you what's good and bad about a movie kind of thing. <laughs> well, I so, yeah, my my credentials, so to speak, are that I was in film school for like seven years. Um, I have an MFA. And I um, did, I've done a number of uh, different production type work. I haven't, um, I've worked in some films, I've worked in some short films and some features, and most of it's pretty unknown stuff. And I've worked, I worked in advertising for a while, which I mostly got away from because it's terrible. Um, Well, for me, (laughs) I really, really hated working in marketing. Um, But uh, yeah, so I've done, I've done, I know the production side of filmmaking well enough and I've studied it for many years. And so, and I've been, I've been kind of engaged actively with that part of my brain um, and my personality for uh, at least 15 or 20 years now. So that's kind of my, um, that's where I'm coming from personally. And CJ on the nerd side of it is uh, just about the (laughs) most, uh, I would say well-rounded nerd that I've met. I mean, this guy, I mean, he's been a fan of comic books his whole life. 
And he knows just about everything I think there is to know about comic books. And he would argue, he'd say, well, there's people who know more than me, but I have not met anybody who knows more about comic <laughs> books than this guy. And, yeah. um, and he, he even, he, he even right now works for DC um, or I should say for Warner brothers in the DC universe. So he's, he's the, he's, he's one of the, one of the marketing people in that world. And so he, all the people that he spends most of his day job hours with are, uh, you know, like him, super nerds. <laughs> so um, it was really fun to kind of approach. I mean, the original inspiration for the podcast, uh, the, I should say the the more concrete inspiration was the um, was Marvel movies and DC movies. And, you know, we're, we, we're these huge, I mean, the biggest blockbusters of the year now typically are um, are based on this kind of comic book IP. And so we were thinking, hey, you know, everybody's going to see these movies. And there are people like me who, you know, the first time I ever heard about Iron Man was in 2008 when the movie came out. You know, I had no idea. I was, I've never been to comic books, but I love movies. And so I would show up to these movies and I would say, this is, you know, some of these are really amazing and some of these are not great. And so that's where I'm coming from, you know, not being a comic book nerd, not ha coming in with expectations from that angle. And then he's coming in as a person who loves movies, but, mo but more than that is deeply familiar with the source material. And so he's showing up to the movie with this, you know, set of very, uh, very established expectations based on his love of the source material. And so we thought, hey, you know what? I think there's a pretty fruitful conversation to come out of, especially for those kinds of movies. And of course, Nerd Critic, you know, we're trying to be as broad as possible for big movies. Um, so we don't just cover comic book movies, but those are definitely kind of our bread and butter. And a Marvel movie comes out and that's like, you know, we're all over it. <laughs> so. Oh, Yeah. Well, that's kind of interesting because because that's something that we, we talk about too because uh, we kind of talk about it from the perspective of experienced versus unexperienced a comic book fan because we both have kids who are just touching that world of comics and you know that world. My, my daughter loves the Hulk. She loves everything about the Hulk. So she reads the comic books of the Hulk. So she's very much into that character. My son's very much into Star Wars and things like that. So that's kind of a thing. And, and Ernie, his daughter, um, is, in, is huge into Sailor Moon. So there's a huge – feed there of what they are familiar with and then they start making the movies like you said and you kind of have to take a step back and you guys find you have to do that when you're like it, it's an enjoyable from a movie perspective so because of that are we really gonna rag too heavily on it if he if it veers so far off from the topic the actual source material yeah do you guys take that into consideration in, in your conversations oh absolutely um so there's a couple of different um, there's a couple of different critical aspects to this question. One is um, really it comes down to adaptation theory, um, which is, you know, you can't, when, whenever you're adapting one thing into another thing. So for instance, a comic book into a movie, um, you have to take into account what the comic book is trying to do and what the most critical components of that comic book are. So what, what, it, what, what makes, what is the, the most important essence of that source object that you were trying to turn into another object. And, um, and, but so that's, so that's really interesting because if you are a really big fan of the comic book, then you're going to have a lot of expectations about what the movie should be. Um, but in, in adaptation theory, we have to also understand that you can never like the thing that you make out of the first thing. The second thing is a totally different thing. So the movie is never going to be like the comic book. It's never going to be that. It's, it's gonna, it, it is its own thing. But that doesn't mean that the original source material doesn't matter. And so that's why, th that's where all the tension comes in. And that's where the really, you know, that's where a lot of the really exciting components of the conversation come in. So, um, for instance, you know, we covered Dark Phoenix, which is, has a lot of problems. Um, and I... Uh, I enjoyed Dark Phoenix okay, you know, it was, you know, I, I, I had low expectations because I think a lot of the, you know, there's been approximately one in 1.5 good X-Men movies. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and, and, and CJ, uh, one of his favorite comic book storylines of all time is the Dark Phoenix storyline in the X-Men comics. And I was 0% familiar with any of that. I, you know, my, my only exposure to dark phoenix was x-men 3 back in 2000 whatever um that was terrible and we do uh, not speak of that one yeah we it's a, it's it is a it is one <laughs> of those that belongs in the you know in the dustbin of forgotten history so we so i i didn't i mean so I, I was excited to see another interpretation of that and anyway 
you know, if you want to hear full thoughts about that movie, go listen to the episode. <laughs> so we, go listen to the episode, yes. But, uh, but, but, you know, it was interesting because I was coming from from a perspective of, you know, here, here are the things that are filmically wrong with this thing. Um, but then here's some things that I think are operating pretty well. And then CJ came in and said, listen, <laughs> here's what they had to work from. And here's what they made. And from that perspective, it's really interesting and fascinating because there's there's lots of problems that I wouldn't have even, uh, that wouldn't even occur to me. Or lots of, I should say, even better or even more appropriately, lots of missed opportunities that I wouldn't have been aware of. Like here's a lot of stuff they could have done based on the source material that they had to work with that they just didn't do for who knows why. And I, you know, so I'm, I'm fascinated by why those choices were made. And so we can have some of that conversation. So that's, you know, that's, that's an example of, you know, some of the places we go to. Now, do you, um, do you happen to like know off the top of your head, like any of these directors or producers that, you know, they, they try to take that source material and they, like you said, you want to turn it into something and not do like a shot for shot remake, like. Zack Snyder did The Watchmen, but like maybe, uh, do you know like any other director that's like really good at doing that? That's maybe not getting the credit that they should. Um, so there's a lot of I think there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, so like a lot of good stuff. We I mean, frankly, we wouldn't have started the podcast unless there was a lot of stuff to love. Um, like really deeply, sincerely love. And uh, you know, I think I think that the best adaptations are not trying to be the comic book but they understand the strengths of the medium that they're adapting from and they try wherever possible to uh capitalize on those strengths or to or to pay respects to those strengths or even borrow from or translate those strengths in, onto the screen so we did um uh a couple a couple notes one we've talked on our show a lot about kevin feige because this guy seems to be just a godlike producer who can somehow wrangle untold number of talent um, above the line and probably below the line too, um, to to somehow make 22 or 23 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies that are cohesive, some of which are very, very good, um, and many of which are at least very, very entertaining, and all of which fit into the overall paradigm and style of this thing, which made, you know, Endgame the bonanza success that it was. So that's cool. And and there's a lot going on there that I'm also unaware of because, like I said, not a comic book guy. Never read a comic book in my life, actually, to be full, full disclosure. Never actually read a comic book. Um, wow. I may have opened a comic book and seen panels from it, but I have never sat down and opened up a comic book from page one and read it from start to finish. I've never done that in my life. Um, and so I don't know anything about that. Um, CJ, opposite. Read thousands of comic books, I'm sure. And um, when we went to see, uh, you know, Endgame, Avengers Endgame, he had so many thoughts, <laughs> so many um, uh, so many things, so many Easter eggs, so many things that he was thrilled about based on his deep love of comic books and his um, encyclopedic knowledge, knowledge of the MCU up to that point, um, that, that, that was a movie that I, I would say did it right, delivered on lots and lots and lots of expectations that a huge, diverse audience was bringing. The other movie I want to call, or the other ex specific example I want to call it as a movie, uh, more specifically, is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is probably one of the best comic book adaptations that I've ever seen. Not just, not because I know anything about the comic book that it was adapted from or the series of comic books. I don't know how comic books work, if that's not clear yet. Anyway, um, <laughs> but it was so good because it could help somebody like me who doesn't understand comic, comic books at all to come in and really uh, feel like I'm appreciating, I'm, I'm being given something or shown something that is really magical and spectacular partly because it's so comic book like without ha without having been a fan of comic books and from what i've understood or, or or talked to my friends who are really into comic books it was very very successful as an adaptation from that angle um no, no movie is ever going to be a shot for shot remake of a comic book you can say oh look at this shot that they did um that uh you know was exactly like this panel from this issue and that's fine but that's and you can do that as many times as you want but the fact remains, what you're making is a movie, not a comic book. 
So no matter what, the thing that you're making is going to be dramatically different than the thing that it was made based off of. And that's another sort of really important aspect of adaptation theory is that you cannot expect to make something totally faithful to the thing that you're that you're adapting from. It's just not possible. You're you're shifting medium. Um, so anyway, that's a probably a longer answer to your question that you were looking for, and and also incomplete. So you know, failure on both counts. <laughs> anyway. No, no, that that was great. No, that was a lot of insight there, and I agree with you on the whole Spider Verse thing because you know sometimes I go watch these movies with other people that aren't as knowledgeable as I am about comic books or or like the background to this thing, and to be able to go into a movie with somebody and they and basically the movie just gives them an entire story, you know what I mean? Instead of yeah. them having to know all the background and all the history. Yeah, yeah. And that's another really tough thing that um, that adaptations have to work with, um, especially comic book adaptations, because comic books, you know, famously have this deep, deep base of story and background that they're drawing from. And there's a natural and I think appropriate expectation that if you open up a comic book, you're going to know something about all the some of the stuff that came before. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sure that there are comic books that are written for the uninitiate, but um, but every movie has to be written and produced for the uninitiate, uh, with the exception, perhaps, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But even they do a pretty great job of bringing you in. If you haven't seen any Marvel movies at all, you can come in at any point in the story and you can sort of figure out what's going on. Um, because that's, I mean, that's that's the medium. That's what it has to do. Um, whenever you make a, a blockbuster feature movie, you have to you have to assume that some significant percentage of your audience is not going to know anything about any of the stuff that came before what the movie that you're making. And so, you know, how do you give that person a good time? How do you help that person understand the story and the characters to the point that you know by the end they'll have been satisfied in some way narratively? Um, so that's that's a huge, huge, huge difference. Um, between and you know and also I mean well we could go on and on about the differences between comic books and movies. <laughs> it's weird yeah. because it's weird because people um, don't seem to acknowledge those differences very often when they're talking about the strengths and weaknesses based on uh, based on the, the source material. So oh you know this movie didn't do this but the comic book did this or this movie did this when the comic book did this other thing and what you know what a stupid what a stupid change. It's like well I mean wait a minute, <laughs> like maybe, but also maybe you're working in an entirely like drastically different medium. So that's a, that's a thing that, that is always worth considering and talking about. So you kind of bring up an interesting point with, with the differences in mediums, but another thing that comes about too with it is the sequel, right? Because in Marvel Cinematic Universe, basically every movie they've made even though it doesn't feel like it is really a sequel yeah. to the first one, you know, yeah. they made a ton of sequels, but there's been a lot of change. It's a lot of times in, in Marvel, but in other genres as well, where they make these sequels with the thought. And there's like, there seems to be two different viewpoints. They either make a sequel to a movie, to, to a, a cinematic blockbuster to literally just make more money. And then there's others that make them to really finish the story and then every once in a while, there's a movie that comes out, and you're not really sure where it falls. Is it really a moneymaker? Are they just trying to make more money? Do they really want to finish the story? They seem kind of lazy about it. I, I come back to like the Matrix Revolution type thing, like the <laughs> first one. It really kind of did that. It's like that third movie. Did we need it? Did we need the <laughs> second movie? You know, and I love all three. I, I'm one of those weird out there on the edge that says I liked all three of them for what they had to offer and what they were trying to say, even though they didn't quite get there. But have you noticed that in like the sequel world, since you kind of have like an insider and in how movies are made, is it, is it like that two options, whether it's, are you just out to make more money or are you out to tell a story or are they really storytellers still out there who want to finish a story? Well, um, this may not be the answer you're looking for, but, um, no, 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 no writer, director, no creative team, um, is, is, uh, I shouldn't say no creative team, but very, very rarely is there a creative team that is, that is just there to make money for the studio. Um, you know, you typically don't, even, even if you, you, you signed onto a project, let's say you're a director, uh, and you're, you're kind of a, 
just like a, a a day job director hired, you know, who's worked for big studios many times and you're coming in to do this movie because they're giving you a lot of money, whatever. Um, directors can't do their job and writers can't do their job without trying to find some reasonable creative justification for the work they're doing. So you can say a studio is only making this money, this movie to make money, but that's true of every single movie, movie from the um, perspective of the studio. No studio ever makes a movie for the sake of the story. <laughs> like, so the, the, yeah. the, 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 tension, the tension is between the creative team who's in charge of executing that story and the studio who's paying for it. So the studio is saying, listen, we don't care what you do with the story as long as you get butts in seats. And, you know, hopefully there's some understanding between the executives who are kind of like running the process. And, you know, and, and, and I would say on the whole, executives tend to understand that there's a fairly good and, and, uh, and positive connection between, um, between good storytelling and profitability <laughs> with movies. Um, right, right. They are not unrelated. However, the, um, the primary objective of the studio is to make money, which is appropriate. It's the reason we even have blockbusters. And the primary objective of the creative team is to tell a good story and to, and to tell a story that is, that is, uh, th- that is true to whatever, especially if you're talking about franchises and continuations and sequels and reboots and blah, blah, blah. Um, whenever you sit down to make a movie, um, you're gonna, or I guess nobody sits down to make a movie unless you're an editor. Anyway, um, the, the creative team, the creative team that is approaching that material is not going to think about it from the studio's perspective necessarily of I'm only here to make money and it doesn't matter what the story is. Every single, every single creative person is going to try their best to do something valuable narratively. Um, but that's, not always successful, obviously. And, and often there's, uh, you know, you can be set up to fail. So, um, when, what I think the movie that you're, the, the movies that you're thinking of that seem like they only exist to make money and they're doing nothing for the story. I think often what that comes from is a studio saying, Hey, we are going to, we would love to make a sequel of this because, um, because we want to make money. And this seems like a really great opportunity to make money. Um, this just seems like a slam dunk because, hey, the first one was so successful in the second and, you know, whatever. Here's 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 this opportunity. And then they hire a creative team and the creative team comes in and says, this doesn't make any sense. There's no there's no uh, there's no story here. Um, there's you know, or at least this is from the perspective of the creative team. If 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 a movie results that you go see in the theater that seems like it doesn't have a reason to exist other than to make money, then what happened was essentially fa- essentially a failure of creativity. And it's not, and sometimes creatives are set up to fail. So they're give, they're handed a project. I think actually a great example of this, since examples are helpful sometimes, um, is the Hobbit movies. The Hobbit movies ah. were not good, right? They were there were things about them that were good, but overall they were not successful. And almost any Lord of the Rings fan you talk to is probably feels pretty salty about the Hobbit movies, and. Um, and a lot of people blame Peter Jackson. They say, this guy just wanted to make a bunch of money. He comes in and he says, we're going to take this book, the shortest book of the four books. So you've got, you know, Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, The Return of the King, and The Hobbit. And out of all four of those books, the shortest one is The Hobbit. And somehow we have three three-hour movies based on that book. Like, this guy obviously just wanted to make a ton of money. But if you go behind the scenes a little bit, you find out that the studio was pushing the was pushing this agenda through hard because it said, "Hey, you know, Lord of the Rings, this trilogy that we that we shot all at once and we released over the three year span, and you know, got just just a freaking carpet of um, Academy Awards. And you know, if we do this again, like obviously there's this huge enthusiastic audience. People love Lord of the Rings. If we do The Hobbit and we do it in the same style and we hire the same creative team." And we put out three new movies. It's going to be amazing. People are going to love it. They're going to go crazy. And yeah, they made a bunch of money, but they weren't good. And the reason they weren't good is because the studio didn't care that much about the creative process. And so they, you know, they, they uh, round robin a couple of directors, writers, et cetera. And by the time they brought Peter Jackson in, the, the, the production schedule for those movies was so tight that he had no time to actually write the movies before they started shooting. He was literally on set trying to figure out what they were going to shoot. Sometimes they would show up and he'd be like, well, we've got the whole crew here. We've got the whole cast of actors. We've got everything that we need. 
but the script isn't actually finished. There's the, this, this scene that we need to shoot doesn't exist. And so he'd be in a room, you know, torturously trying to write the scene so that they could shoot something. And that was the production experience of that movie. And that is not wow. Peter Jackson's fault. You know, uh, at some point, somebody, the conversation had to happen. And maybe Peter Jackson took the job because he, because he was, you know, attracted to the paycheck and who could blame him, right? I mean, I'm sure they paid him a bunch of money. But there's also a good possibility that because nobody loves Lord of the Rings more than Peter Jackson. Nobody. There's not a person on this world that has like a deeper love for those movies and Peter, that, for those books than Peter Jackson does. And so there's a good possibility that he saw what, what, where the Hobbit movies were going and how fraught they were as a production. And when they said, hey, Peter, can you come in and, and, and do this for us because it's failing? He was like, well, no one else is going to do it any better than I could. Like, I'm going to do my best to do, to do right by these movies because I love them so much. And like, so when we, when we, you know, leave the theater and say, well, that was crap. What a stupid waste of time. What a stupid decision to make those movies that way. I, that, those are all fair reactions, but we have to understand that the fault isn't necessarily with the creative team. It's very, very hard to make movies successfully. And sometimes studios make decisions that are driven by money and they set up their, well, they always make decisions driven by money, but sometimes they make those decisions at the expense of the creative team and they set their creative team up to fail. And that's, and that's what happened with the, the, the Hobbit movies. And, um, and it's happened many, many times in many, you know, this is not an uncommon experience. So that's, that is what is happening when a studio, quote unquote, makes a movie just for money. And, and it's critical to understand that always movies are made for money. Always. There's no exceptions, except for maybe independent film. Um, but when you're, when you're talking about movies that come out in theaters that people are supposed to go see, it's only for money. But you hope that the creative team is given the right tools and time and resources to do their best to make something really worthwhile and beautiful. Um, and that, and that happens sometimes, which is, which is wonderful. But anyway, there you go. Well, my, my thing, what I took away from that, when you mentioned Peter Jackson, could, would it be fair to say that the opposite is for like someone like James Cameron, who basically gets the blank check and <laughs> amount of time? Yeah, but but James Cameron, I mean, so so once again, James Cameron is and I I think James Cameron is a wonderful example because because this guy uh I think uh, there's the other the, the part that I, that I, that I didn't talk about during that like 45 minute rant that I just went on um <laughs> was that uh sometimes the creative no matter how passionate they are and how deeply they care about the project does not actually have the creative uh wherewithal to execute at the level that maybe w most people would accept as, as good or high quality. And when it comes to James Cameron, I think this is a guy who is deeply talented as a director and a filmmaker. Um, the, I mean, really, you, there's, no, there's no arguing with his talent as, as a director and as a filmmaker. But as a writer, I think he leaves something to be desired. And, um, and that's problematic because he does get a blank check. And so he's not set up to fail, except for that he's set up to do whatever he wants. And and as a writer, he's not he's not there. He doesn't he doesn't have a, he doesn't have sophistication as a writer. And he think he thinks he does. And because he's so powerful, he can kind of do whatever he wants. And so we get you know Avatar, which I think is garbage storytelling. It's paint by numbers garbage storytelling. And it's also very boring to watch on anything other than an IMAX 3D screen. So the, really, like, you know, I mean, I think movies like Avatar and some of his other projects have merit. It's not that they're valueless, but as storytelling exercises, they're not great. And it's not because a studio says, hey, we want to make a bunch of money. Or James Cameron says, I'm going to make this movie. It's going to make a bunch of money. It's because he thinks this is the coolest thing he could possibly do. And he's going to do it no matter what. And because he's James Cameron, he tends to just make all the money. Um, and so that's whatever, you know, it's, so none of that. I mean, so it's, it's, you know, it's this, it's this sort of whatever this, uh, this bouquet, this tapestry of, of uh, different incentives, but it, it's really important to remember, always really important to remember that a creative does not go in for the sole purpose of making money because if they did, they, they, they wouldn't be a creative. They wouldn't be doing that for their job. Very nice. I love it. It's 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 a really nice perspective to take a little bit different pull than what we normally talk about and really kind of talk about that back end process of it's not 
there was no one saying just just shove the movie out there, put slap a title on it, and call it this because there's money to be made. There is that two sided coin, and sometimes one side or the other just kind of doesn't hit the mark where they should. Yeah, uh, and and a lot of times it can be with the creative, and it's not really their their fault per se. Maybe they had, like you said, production time, or they just don't have the raw talent. And it's an interesting thing about the Cameron movies you mentioned that that he does get that glorious spectacle of a movie on the high level but on the dialogue and the writing level it's kind of kind of crap it's kind of a weird kind of mixture to see that yeah um, to see those two kind of perspectives um we're actually going to take a short commercial commercial break here but when we come back i really want to talk about um the relationship between books and movies and how we've seen going back to the hobbit you talked about talking about that that relationship and what you have as perspective on some of the old books and the new books and what's coming next as far as storytelling in the books and movies we see cool before we do that though i want to remind everybody that if you are not using podcoin uh to listen to our podcast you should not only do you have the opportunity to actually hear our podcast as glorious sound but you also get a chance to earn some points for yourself to either get gift cards or for charity. So check out PodCoin today. All our episodes are there and make some extra for yourself. And we'll be right back after this commercial break. Seamless transition. And we return in our glory. And again, as I was mentioning just before the break, and Ernie, you have some perspective on this because you've read a lot of books too, and you've seen a lot of those books come to screen, you know, over the, over the years. So for you, Jordan, when these books come out and they, people love them, they fall in love, Harry Potter, The Hobbit, uh, The Seawolf, I mean, they, they've made movies out of all of these and more. What does that process look like in the future? Do you feel that people are going to still be pulling from these sources? And is there going to be really new stories coming out of this that we really want to see? Or just kind of a rehash like we're seeing with, you know, some of the movies out there like Lion King, for example. So uh, Disney is a really interesting, uh, is a really interesting animal because it has so much power and it has made um, incredibly shrewd financial decisions over and over and over again. Um, it releasing all of its old, older sort of famous properties, uh, re-releasing, and they call calling it live action. In the case of Lion King, is sort of hilarious. It's just another kind of animation. Um, but uh, is yeah. So I'm I'm actually I'm actually not sure how how to answer that question. So you're you're saying you're you're saying um, that we've got all these. Basically, are there any new stories coming, or are we going to just get rehashes of old stories? Is that kind of the the basic question that you're yeah asking. yeah because you come back you go back to the book concept of it right because you yeah. look at novels you know you've had the lion king in novelization first it wasn't called the lion king but it's it's out there over and over again it's an old fable an old african tale it's you know it's 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 out there it's the same thing with a lot of these other stories the jungle book and and, and i mean almost everything disney's done is they're they're a perfect example it's easy to rip them off because of that um where they've taken these old stories from these books they put them on film we love them they are now rehashing these books again in their remakes again i use lion king as a as an example because of the hilarity of it live action but you know cinderella came out beauty and the beast you know they did a whole bunch aladdin they were all books yeah. originally you know and it's like yeah are we getting continue to feel we're going to continue pulling from books and is there a value to that or is there original storytelling going to happen do you feel um you know it's interesting because some of the some of the um, movies that have seemed the most unique or fresh like a great example is arrival right do you remember did you, did you guys watch arrival back last year uh, i think it was last year oh, yeah, that science fiction movie yeah yeah yeah. Um, so that, I mean, would would you would you classify that as something that was fresher <laughs> than what we've seen before? Yeah, I would. I mean, at least by the the idea of it. I mean, Alien Encounters we've seen, but I felt the perspective was unique. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very, very fresh. Um, and uh, you know, and I think there's there there's other examples. Like I think sci-fi is a really, really uh, ripe with opportunity for lots of different kinds of stories. Um. So Arrival is based on a short story, and I, it's on the brain right now because I just I, I'm in the middle of reading um, Ted Chiang's new um, 
the collection of short stories. And that came from one of his short stories from a previous collection. Um, I think it's called the story of us. And, uh, Oh, and that, is that, that the one that the TV shows based on or the movies based on or something? Wasn't there anything uh, doing something with that one too? Yeah. So arrival, uh, the, the movie arrival was based on the short story called the story of us, um, by, uh, by Ted okay. Chiang. Yeah. Okay. And so, so it's on the brain right now. Cause I'm reading his new, his new collection of short stories. And so one thing that's really important, and I, I this is, this is a, this is just sort of my personal theory about this, um, but I think it bears out in what we see, is that um, screenplays, it's important to understand that a screenplay is never written to be read. <laughs> a screenplay is an, <laughs> a screen, a screenplay is, a, is an awkward, well, not awkward, but it's a, basically a blueprint for a movie. And so people in the industry will read screenplays and, and sometimes like them, but they're not for distribution. Nobody writes a screenplay to be distributed as a piece of entertainment for the mass audiences. Like that's not what a screenplay is for. Um, and so it's really, I think this is one of the reasons it's less common to see movies that are based on nothing and totally unique um, because short stories and novels and comic books and so forth are made to be independently entertaining. They are made for the sake of themselves. You know, a book, a, a novel doesn't get written to be adapted. It may get adapted if it's popular and if people want to adapt it, but it's written for itself. It's written to be entertaining by itself. Same with short stories, same with comic books. And so it's really easy to for, uh, for producers and writers to take a, a, a piece of material that is already entertaining and successful and say, hey, this would make a great movie. And that's where adaptation comes from. And that's where, and I think that's why so many movies that you see, um, even movies that feel fresh and unique, are based on something, because that thing existed and was entertaining and cool before anyone thought to make it into a movie. And so, um, so I think that's one that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that the most um, valuable, the most valuable uh, thing in the film industry right now is IP. And, it, and this is actually something that's changed in the past like generation, because I think if you go back to pre, let's say pre 2008 or pre 2005, or maybe even just pre 2000, just to make it simple, um, the most valuable thing in, in uh, cinema was actors, the, the, an A-list actor, or a name. If you could get a face that was recognizable, that was the brand that you needed to get butts in seats. But that's changed. And so now it's IP. IP, of course, meaning intellectual property. So if you can get something that's already popular and already has an audience, it's much, much, much easier to sell it in distribution because it's extremely expensive to try to get to try to get audiences to get to see movies, to sit, to go to the theater and buy tickets or or who knows, or go online and buy it on Amazon or iTunes. Like it's very, very, very hard. Because there's this, you know, we're inundated with with media and with options. And so to get people to actually care about what you've produced and to pay for it is so challenging. It's it's more expensive. It's more costly and dangerous and risky than actually making the thing itself. And so the most valuable thing is is the mitigation of risk and the and the, the, the most the surest way to mitigate the risk of producing content and getting people to go see it is to use something that people are already familiar with on some level. Which is why, uh, which is why Disney keeps buying huge, huge, huge IP properties like Star Wars and Marvel and so on, is because they know. And Fox, they bought Fox because yeah, I, that was crazy. They bought Fox for the sake of owning all of the IP that Fox had. So now the X Men, that huge, huge, extremely well known um, catalog of intellectual property, now belongs to Disney. And so they can continue to make stuff that's based on that IP because it is the best way to mitigate the risk of people not showing up to the thing you spent tons of money to make. And that's why we will continue to see um, stories based on things that we're familiar with. It's, I think, that's, I think that, that, that not only is not going to go away, that's going to increase. The pace of that will increase. Um, to the point that I think it'll be very rare to see anything that's not based on something that, that you're at least passingly familiar with. The good news is that you can tell a good story about about anything. You don't you don't have to 
like, and I think this is one of the great things that Marvel has done. They've proven that you can tell interesting genre-based stories within this familiar paradigm, within this familiar IP, and it, it can still feel fresh and awesome, um, even though it's based on something that's been done, you know, a, a bunch of times or that we're all familiar with or whatever. So it doesn't make it doesn't mean that we're not going to get fresh stories, and doesn't mean that we're not going to get good movies. It just means that the that the paradigm for blockbusters is going to continue to be based on intellectual property. You know, I wanted to see what your thoughts were on this when it comes to like movies like sci-fi or these comic book movies. Cause I think comic book movies is going to be a brand new category pretty soon. Um, do you believe that the best examples of those movies are the ones that are allegorical? Like, you know, for instance, uh, Thor Ragnarok was like a spoof on all the superhero movies. Uh, Ant-Man was just like retelling a bank heist. You know, um, Civil War was like, you know, the the um, the battle between, you know, two uh, two best friends, you know, and and uh, and all that. Do you tend to agree with that or do you tend to, to think that there is this magic formula that no matter what you do, as long as you follow the formula, it's going to work? <laughs> well, <laughs> I feel like. I feel like I've been baited for a certain response, right? Because <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not going to say number two. I'm not going to be like, yeah, it's if you follow the formula, it's always going to work. No, like you have to you have to find find the best way to tell a story. And you know, it's interesting to to hear you say that. You know, you think maybe comic books are going to be another category. Um, I think people already tend to refer to uh, many kinds of movies like, as comic book movies, um, but I think comic book movies are actually not really a genre. Um, comic books are a medium, not a genre. And so sci-fi is a genre. Um, and, and there are, it's a big genre. There's a lot of different subgenres of that genre, but there are certain expectations that we, that we have for sci-fi as a genre or for bank heist is an even better example, because that's a very, a heist movie is a very specific, um, narrow genre and you can make, uh, and you know, because, so many movies are based on comic books. They're not based on a genre. They're based on a medium. And so the same way that, you know, um, Lord of the Rings is a, is a series of movies based on books. Um, you know, all the Marvel movies are a series of movies based on comic books. Um, it's just a different medium. And so you can get any genre out of that medium. And, and, and to, to the point of, you know, for, because also any genre movie could be formulaic. Um, in fact, that's sort of the definition of a genre movie is that there's an underlying formula, which is another way of saying is that this is saying that is that there's an underlying set of expectations about those movies. So, um, if I go to see a bank heist movie, um, or a heist movie of any kind there, I'm, I'm going to expect to see certain kinds of characters and certain, you know, plot situation. I'm going to expect to see a twist. I'm expect there's, there's going to be all these sort of components that I will expect to see and, but how those are executed can always be fresh. It can always be freshened. Um, you know, I think Thor Ragnarok, uh, when, before it came out, I remember people saying, you know, uh, that Marvel had made uh, essentially a sci-fi buddy comedy. And I was like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and when, what, you know, you go to see Thor Ragnarok and it kind of is, that's basically the genre that it, that it is. Um, it takes a little while to set up to that buddy comedy angle, but when it gets there, it's, it's pretty great. And what, you know, what are the hallmarks of a buddy comedy? Um, it's it's two characters that are very different from each other. It's two characters who want different things, um, but then they find a common objective, and eventually, you know, uh, it's through their differences that they are able to succeed or whatever. Anyway, so there there are these you could call them formulaic, but really it's genre conventions. And you um, and and the 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 genius of creativity. So if a, if a thing is really successful, it means that the creative person behind that thing understood those conventions well enough. To follow them when it made when it when it was the best to follow them and to break them or disrupt them disrupt them when it would serve the story best to to, to disrupt those things but did it in a way it's it's kind of like um, you know I've been a writer my whole life and you hear very very early on you're allowed to break grammar rules as long as you know the grammar rules you can't break rules that you don't know how to follow because then you just look like an idiot and so if you are working in genre then you better understand the genre conventions so that you so that you can break them not so you can break all of them but so that you know when it's going to be really decisive and effective to break a genre convention um, but you are you do understand the underlying formula 
which is what allows you to do such. I mean, Taika what what uh, Taika Waititi is just a fantastic filmmaker, and uh, and Thor Ragnarok is such a great movie, <laughs> and it's because he underst- he understood a lot of those conventions and uh, and and knew where to bend and break some of them so that to give us sort of this like fresh take on a story. I think that's just fascinating. I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the level of mind blown, but I'm pretty dang close to kind of think of it like that, especially in the Marvel universe, because we're so used to thinking of them, because they're all kind of, again, as I go back to the, they're all kind of sequels that they're all the same, they're all the same genre. But you're right, if you start looking at them that way by the classic, you know, if you will, film noir versions of what a genre is of a buddy buddy movie, of a an epic battle movie, uh, whatever, and you put them back into those categories it really does you can kind of go back through and say okay which category does this movie this is a classic hero movie is this a you know classic white and you kind of put it back into that framework it's kind of interesting to kind of re-watch those with that kind of mindset rather than oh this is just another superhero movie we don't know what we're going to get because it's cool but yet you kind of can kind of see that from the back end of 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 the mechanics of it it's yeah. kind of a a very interesting view to take that I had not really thought about because it came out and it came out with so big, just so big, as you said, like such a fresh take, you really couldn't, you, you had to sit back. And if you really are trained in it, like it sounds like you, you really are uh, not to boost your ego, but you're really good at it. But yeah, it kind of blows your mind a little bit to say, you know what? He's right. It's, there's not its own, it really is kind of these mini genres, but because of how it's done and you're seeing this overall story arc and this big explosive thing, it kind of gets blended in, but you could still pull out that one movie and say it falls into this genre. It falls into that genre. It falls into this other genre. It isn't one genre. It happens to have people with superpowers, but it falls into a subgenre of what it actually is. Yeah. I, a great just, example of that also is, uh, is Spider-Man Far From Home. Which is a uh, high school like romance comedy. It's not, <laughs> it, it, it isn't much of a superhero movie until like closer to the second half. But even then, it's very much high school romance comedy. Like that's that's the genre that it's that it's operating in. Nice. We, don't give me too much. I'm actually seeing it for the first time tomorrow. Oh, um, I haven't great. had a chance. I'm seeing, with, I'm seeing it with me and my dad. So just the two of us are going to go see it. Oh, that's, um, that's, so you're I, yeah. a great time. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, my, my, my son saw it like the minute it came out. Like he is obsessed. Like he'll go over Marvel theories all day. He went out and saw the first day and he was like, oh my God, it's literally the perfect movie. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know that that's a perfect movie, dude. I'm, you're 16. So everything is perfect to you. I'm sure it's good. <laughs> but enjoy, but enjoy it while last, kid. Enjoy it while last. Yeah. <laughs> we all know as adults the the perfect movie is Empire Strikes Back. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> it, it does have all of the genre pieces we were talking about, but um, is there? Well, that, that's a good thing because you talk. We talked about that mythical magic formula that doesn't actually exist. As as long as you, as you said, follow the rules until you know when to break them. Is there a movie or a group of movies that really kind of brought out like the first of their kind of a new genre? Is there are there other movies you can think of that are like that as you've experienced? Um, you were talking about the Matrix trilogy earlier. Um, I think mm-hmm. uh, I think the Matrix was a pretty great example of a of a. I mean, there aren't. Oh, I, you know what? Well, okay. So the Matrix is a great example of a movie that. Uh, that introduced a whole lot of new conventions that people then like kind of wanted to ape for the next, you know, well, till today, even um, yeah. it, it, it brought up, but I would say that's more of, that was more of a stylistic disrupt disruption or addition to the cinematic canon. People, um, you know, have been inspired by what the matrix did many times over um, to the point that now we don't even notice it. It's just part of our cinematic language. Um, I, you know, one of the movies that I, find most fascinating um historically was uh because there are certain genres that we think of um uh, and 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 i'm not a genre expert either this is not something that i'm like super well <laughs> that's okay um, i i you know there are there are people who have sort of encyclopedic knowledge about about you know film history and and where things started and how things started and so forth and uh, like I have, a, I have a friend i went to school with um uh in grad school who like is a screen, a working screenwriter today. And he is, 
um, I, I don't know very many people who can just, who can just off the cuff, like talk about the <laughs> career trajectory of like, you know, any famous filmmaker, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. He knows everything. Um, but I, so I'm not, I'm not that guy, but one of the movies that I, that I, that I call up for as a great example of what you're talking about is, is the movie alien by Ridley Scott. Ah, um, yes. and that movie, that's such a good movie, by the way. <laughs> it's like, it is, I mean, if, if you, if, if you, if you haven't seen it in a while or for any of, uh, people who listen to this, who are listening to the podcast right now or haven't seen it, um, it's so worth going back to and revisiting. Um, it's such a, such a good movie, but that movie basically invented sci-fi horror. Like it didn't exist before that movie, um, which is really interesting because sci-fi horror is something that is very, uh, it's very defined, right? If you go into a sci-fi horror movie there, you will have a lot of, of fairly accurate expectations for, for what you're going to see or how you're going to see things play out. But before alien, that kind of like monster in the house, sci-fi horror it was not a thing. Ridley Scott kind of invented that with that movie, um, which is super cool. Um, and I think that happens. I think that happens somewhat frequently. Sometimes it happens in a really big blockbustery way, and sometimes it happens in a quiet way. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, um, Christopher Nolan made Memento, and uh, and and people, and you know, he ha- it wasn't even the first time that he had done like the, the movie following that he made, which was this you know unknown independent movie. Like nobody has seen that movie, but that was technically his first movie. And it was successful enough on in kind of a, a film festival circuit that it allowed him to get some money together to make Memento, which a lot of people who are big fans of Christopher Nolan have seen and loved. Um, and he was the first person, I mean, it wasn't its own genre, but he was the first person to kind of like try to tell a story told in reverse. Um, and he, he may not have even been the first person to do that, but it, he sort of popularized it so that now, you, you know, you, you see a lot of movies that kind of play around with time a lot more. Um, uh, probably a better example, actually, is uh is quentin tarantino who um i have mixed feelings about as a as a filmmaker and as a storyteller but i mean there's no deni- <laughs> there's, there's no denying that the man is in, is deeply talented and uh and very very uh a very good writer and very very good at what he does and when he made pulp fiction um it was the first time anybody had seen this the, this this movie composed of seemingly unrelated vignettes where characters sort of cross paths sometimes, but generally speaking, none of the stories relied on each other. And that was, that was really, really fascinating. And, and what it did was it, it set off a whole lot of other movies that tried to do something similar. And that's kind of its, its own genre. But, but even then, you know, it's no genre kind of comes, springs into existence ex nihilo, right? Like nobody makes a new genre that's not based on any genre previous. So every every mm. every genre that you, every new thing you see happening in genres is is essentially an evolution of one or more other genres. Um, so I mean, Alien's the perfect example, right? Because it's not the first sci-fi movie by a long shot. Certainly not the first horror movie, but maybe the first movie that combined them in that way. Um, and so so that's that's typically how you get new genre stuff. It's not that that uh, this movie is doing something that's never been done before. It's 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 really remixing elements in a way uh, that that is fresh and new and feels exciting. Wow, I feel I feel very smart now. I don't know why, <laughs> but I just feel like I gained a lot of knowledge there. Well, I, I do have one question for you, Jordan. What are your thoughts on the new Joker movie? I mean, when you're talking about genres, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I'll tell you this. It is by far my favorite preview in theaters right now. <laughs> I am <laughs> I am blown away by that trailer. That trailer makes me all kinds of excited. I have no idea uh, if the movie will be as good as its trailer seems to make it seem like it's going to be, but it certainly is an effective piece of media. Um, I man, <laughs> so that's my first thing. Um, there you go. Also, according to. Uh, people I've talked to and what I'm observing, it seems like DC is stepping away from trying to mimic what Marvel is doing in terms of its, you know, cinematic universe thing. Um, So I think that from now on, what we're probably going to see for a while, at least is movies that are sort of independent in that universe. So they're not necessarily connected directly to any other movie. And I think that's probably that's certainly what the uh, the Joker movie looks like. It looks like it's a movie, and I think, and, and frankly, I think that's the right move. 
It's the right move yeah. for DC. And in the future, it may be the right move for Marvel. Um, I, right now, Marvel is being incredibly successful at what they're doing, and they're going to keep doing it until it, it stops being successful, and that's fine. But DC has not been successful in trying to mimic what Marvel is doing, and I think the best possible thing they could do is to try to make really unique, um, well-told, interesting stories within that kind of IP that they own, but not, but not trying to connect it all together as though it's sort of some, some big continuous thing. Which I think is, yeah, I think is a great move for them because they shouldn't, they are not Marvel. They are DC. They are dark. Yeah. They are richer storytelling in a lot of ways. Marvel's yeah. more fun and lighthearted. And they yeah. made some great movies that people just pooped all over because <laughs> it's just, it, there's so much story there. And if they did it without trying to make it part of a bigger universe, they would have been great movies. Yeah. You know, I think that was really a, a big challenge for them to get away from that and realize they don't have to do that to be hugely successful you yeah. know and i'm i'm yeah. very happy that they're making that move because that's kind of the things i'm looking forward to is a lot of their single independent movies that are characters you know but not of what you know they're not going to connect in that way and i'm fine with that yeah um i think it's a great move um but before we go because we are i mean if you could imagine we've actually been doing this for almost an hour now <laughs> um <laughs> i did want to ask you one final question i know ernie wants to ask you this one as well what is some of your favorite movies? Ooh, uh, well, first of all, I have to say that there is a there is an episode that we recorded. It was our our tenth episode that we ever recorded, and we are up to seventy six episodes now. So, uh, nerd, the tenth episode of Nerd Critic is a top ten movies of all time. So we each came to the table with a list of our top ten movies of all time. So I don't so I, check I, that out. So check that out. It's a really fun episode. Um, I I have some standbys that I like to refer to, um, not to spoil that episode, but uh, I actually I think that Toy Story is one of the most perfect movies ever made. Um, it's just just top to bottom, just a basically a perfectly told story. Um, so I love I love to, I love Toy Story. Um, I I I love The Princess Bride. Um, I always will. Um, <laughs> wow. I grew up with it. I think it's incredible. I think it's wonderful. And, and it was written by William Goldman, who might be one of, if not the best screenwriter ever. Um, and uh, who just, I think, died a year ago or so. And it was, you know, that was very sad. Wow. But, um, he's, yeah. So, and he wrote The Princess Bride. He also wrote uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and some other very famous movies. Anyway, not, yeah. so he's great. Um, I would also say, uh, Star Wars is um, Star Wars, the uh, episode four, a new hope, whatever you want to call it. The very first Star Wars movie that ever came out is so lovely and so deeply nostalgic for me and such a wonderful, just artifact of our culture that I, it is always going to be on my top 10. Um, my favorite movie of all time. I won't actually tell you. I will say, go listen to the episode. Go listen to Nerd Critic, and you will find out what my favorite movie of all time is and why. You actually want me leaning forward to my laptop to get close to the. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Fantastic. Let Let's give you a hot moment. Speaking of which, give a give, give a little bit about what you guys are doing now, what you're going to do next. I know you mentioned a little bit, but let's give you a hot moment to advertise for what you guys are doing on the Nerd Critic next. All right. Well, first of all, it's just nerd critic. It's not the nerd critic. We're like we're like Sorry. Facebook that way. We're super cool. Um, <laughs> uh, so we are. Um, we're really excited. We're actually going to be launching a uh, a supporter uh, a supporter kind of um, program uh, in the next week, which is really cool um, on Himalaya, um, which is a new podcasting platform that is kind of getting rolling it's kind of still sort of in beta but anybody can use it you can listen to you can listen to literally any podcast that exists on himalaya it, it, it pulls all the rsss from everywhere um but we'll be setting up a kind of like a patreon for podcasts on himalaya um so there's a lot of new fun content that we're going to release it's going to be super cool but just to just to give a pitch for the podcast itself because our regular episodes are always going to be free to everybody um and it is just a great show. CJ and I have a great time, and uh, and I think we're I think we're pretty good at what we do. And I don't think anybody comes to listen to a nerd critic episode and leaves not having a great time. Um, and that's that's kind of our whole objective. We want to have a lot of fun, and we want everybody who joins us to have a lot of fun with us. And uh, and so if you care about movies at all, 
if you watch movies ever in the theater, uh, you should come listen to Nerd Critic because the show the show is for you. And you'll walk away feeling a little bit smarter. At least that's how I feel. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> well, I saying. Hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Well, I, I hope so. I, I definitely feel it myself. Uh, Dorton, it's been a fantastic conversation with you. We really appreciate you coming on our little podcast where people always walking away of feeling, God, those two guys again. So a little bit different <laughs> feeling walking away from our show than yours. Definitely. Well, I had a um, great time. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Yay. One bit more North fan. <laughs> Um, Ernie, if you will take us out as you always do and make that movie magic happen. Peace out. And that's another episode of Two Nerds and a Joke. Follow Robert and Ernie on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to their YouTube channel.